We've all heard the phrase, that kind of thing doesn't happen in our town. But here on Midwest Murder, we will shatter that false reality. In fact, it happens more often than we know. And sometimes the details of the most horrific crimes that happen in our neighborhoods are lost in the back pages of newspapers, forgotten on our news channels, and eventually erased over time. We're here to talk about murder, diving into some of the most controversial cases in Midwest history. This show will not shy away from the morbid details of these horrific events and the often ugly truth behind it. What you will hear is a detailed timeline of events, perspectives from those closely involved, and analysis by experts. What you will feel is the darkness that surrounds each story, the innocence lost by the victims, and hopefully the justice that was ultimately delivered. Jonah Lanto. Don Palumbo. I'm excited. Here we are again. We are back, and we are excited to be here. We appreciate everybody presently with us at Off the Vine, as well as to all of the amazing listeners who take time out of their busy lives to listen to our podcast and to review us on iTunes. Don, what are people saying about Midwest murder? Not much. It's not much to say. <laughs> I'm kidding. Actually, we, we've had great, uh, great reviews just our fans are amazing and it, it, it's so cool our listeners um they keep rating and reviewing which helps us um in you know the weird algorithms that is life these days it helps us uh do what we do so we appreciate that baby bump 88 said can't believe i put this off i originally heard about midwest murder from a friend after finally getting around to listening to it i can't believe i put it off after listening to the first episode i literally binge listened to get caught up to speed I love the banter, how the episodes are put together, the easy conversation-like tone to the show, as well as the hosts get to the point and deliver the information to us listeners. They even exhibit new details to cases that I never knew, of, knew or were privy to when they were being covered in our local media. Some of these cases even happened in the state that I lived in. It's well-researched, well and if you're into true crime, this is a must-listen to podcast. I'm telling all my friends about it, so that's exciting. Bam. That's well, thank cool. you, Baby Bump 88. Yeah, we appreciate you. you. And... Uh, Great, or Freckles 91, great true crime podcast. I searched for this based on episode two, but have stuck around for the quality. Thank Bam. you for taking time out of your busy lives to not only listen to, that's that's your line. I'm, reading, line. I'm jumping, yeah. jumping ahead. So you're jumping ahead. So that was that was the whole review, so straight to the point from Freckles yeah. 91. But thank you again to all of you for taking time out of your busy lives to not only listen to Midwest Murder, but also review us on iTunes. We really appreciate you. We also really appreciate our brand new sponsor, Shots Crossroads. This episode is brought to you in part by a legendary legendary truck stop. Truck stops are at the heart of what makes the Midwest us, and we are really grateful to Shots Crossroads for, uh, again, sponsoring in part this. They're open 24 hours a day. My favorite part about the truck stop, Don, is that I can get ranch 24 hours a day, breakfast 24 hours a day. It's acceptable to be there drunk, sober, and everywhere in between. <laughs> We've all, if it's 3 a.m. or 1 a.m. or 6 a.m. or it's always in the a.m. when I find myself there. Yeah. For better or worse. Right. They've always and, been there for me. And regardless of what time I'm there, my order is always the same. Bacon cheeseburger with fries, ranch and gravy. That's you it. don't even get I a would... feature. It's like everybody's like, it's the 99, nope. the 88s, nope. the, the, come on, the, the haystack? What are you doing? No, 99 but I would, or 88. You... Or, of course, a chicken strip basket with crispy french fries and a strawberry shake, but what do I know? 
So you would you said you you told me that they they make eight gallons of ranch a day. Eight gallons a day at the truck stop shops crossroads. Yes, I would our main, very own. I would mainline eight bathe gallons in of ranch. It. Yes. Yeah, ranch is at the heart of the Midwest. You can always get it at Shots Crossroads again, 24 hours a day. And they're online ordering now at shotscrossroads.com. So if you're listening from afar, get a gift certificate for for somebody here in Minot. And uh, if you stop in, guys, let them know you do appreciate their support of Midwest Murder. It's pretty awesome. And their ranch. And their ranch. Um, So today we are traveling back to 1998. It's a really awesome year. So what's happening back in 98? Don, Google was founded, believe it or not. Yahoo's still really dominant at this time. Everybody was doing the Yahoo's. Now we all Google. I never did. You never did. I never did. I wasn't, okay. I wasn't Yahoo. Yeah. Bill Clinton denies having sexual relations with that woman, Monica Lewinsky. He's later impeached. In 98, cloning is a big topic, and 19 European nations agree to forbid human cloning. What was the, the, it was a, a sheep, right? Dolly? Yes, absolutely. Dolly. Yeah, yeah, it was, it, people were freaking mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. The film Titanic surpasses $1 billion at the box office. It was the first one to ever do so. United States Capitol shooting incident in 1998, or of, of Russell Eugene Weston Jr. bursts into the United States Capitol and opens fire, killing two police officers. Matthew Shepard, a gay student at the University of Wyoming, tragically is found tied to a fence after being savagely beaten by two young adults in Laramie, Wyoming. Found dead, tied to a fence. Mm -hmm. Iraq disarmament crisis begins. Iraq announces it's no longer going to cooperate with the UN weapons inspectors. And my favorite, I think one of my favorite parts of 98, aside from Titanic, of course, who just can't appreciate that, a lot of activity in outer space in 98. Japan. Hold on, are, you, are you joking? No. No, no, Japan launches. No, I'm talking about Titanic. Oh, Titanic. Really? Oh, yeah. Was that sarcasm? I definitely didn't go to it 11 times in theaters. Are no. you? I'm sorry. Are you serious? Like, this isn't You'll a never bit, know. you guys. This is You'll a... never know. You'll never know. So there's wow. a lot of activity in space in 98. Japan launches a probe to Mars. North Korea launches uh, some of its first orbiting satellites. Space shuttle Discovery blasts off with John Glenn, who becomes the oldest person ever in space. The Deep Space One asteroid mission, several modules of the International Space Station are launched. So uh, all, all kinds of crazy activity. But in Bismarck, North Dakota, it's mid-September 1998. And as we know, the days resonate with fading summer heat but there's a definite hint of fall in the air and the cottonwoods box elder trees the maple trees and elm have all begun to turn their jewel-like yellow red and orange leaves vibrant against the crisp blue autumn sky school is back in session and at bismarck century high Kids are finding their way around a major renovation so it's not only the freshmen who look a little lost Like teens everywhere, girls at Bismarck High fuss with their hair, show off new clothes, giggle and gossip, wonder why boys are so dumb. I don't think they ever stop doing that. Doesn't matter the age. (laughs) Boys slouch around in baggy jeans and faded tees, acknowledging one another with shrugs and fist bumps, wondering why girls are such a mystery. And typical of high schools everywhere, kids gather into packs and cliques. At Century, jocks and rah-rahs, band geeks and theater nerds, emos and goths, skaters and punks, gearheads and aggie stoners and loners, they all might outwardly complain about the start of school. But there is a certain gladness in being back on campus again and knowing just where to find your people. 
The groups and cliques of our high school years may seem silly to us once we reach adulthood, but they're actually quite important to teenagers. High school is a time of intense self-discovery. We're eager to declare ourselves independent and self-reliant and free, but where we still deeply want and need to feel like we belong to someone or to a group of people just like us. Go to pretty much any high school and you'll find a group of kids you'd probably identify as stoners, partiers, druggies. Maybe you'd even call them losers. They're kids who are rough around the edges and tough to their cores. They come from broken homes and hard scrabble lives. They're outsiders or they see themselves as outsiders anyway. They haven't felt much of that love and support at home. And so they look desperately to someone else, a crew, a gang, a tribe they can belong to. Sometimes these kids just don't make it in the regular school setting. In Bismarck, when this happens, kids are transferred to the alternative campus, Bismarck South Central High School. And it is at South Central, in that fall of 1998, that we find a certain clique, a group of kids that includes... Rick Storhog, Misty Jones, Candy Olszewski, Ryan Werner, his sister Amy Werner, and her boyfriend, Brian Erickstead, and Amy and Ryan's sister, Michelle Werner, who is dating a much older man, 27-year-old Robert Lawrence. At his age, obviously not a high school student, Robert Lawrence is nevertheless a part of this clique. Older and ominously charismatic... He is their de facto gang leader. So, Don, you remember the weirdos that bought, bought us beer in high school? He's that guy, but much more creepy. It's not, I mean, it's borderline predator. It's weird. I find it very weird because how old is Michelle? M- Michelle is about 19. Okay. So, so she not, is out of high school. Sure. Well, that makes it a little better, but yeah. So these, these kids live on the edge. They live on lots of edges, actually. On the edge of poverty, on the edge of truancy, on the edge of society. They fill their days with alcohol and drugs, a lot of marijuana, but also dangerous drugs like methamphetamine and cocaine. And these kids have all had brushes with the law, but that doesn't concern them much. Living this kind of life, one with little adult supervision or influence, breaking the rules, romanticizing their outsider status, is heady. It's thrilling. It also establishes a fierce loyalty among the members of the group. They fancy themselves as outlaws. And rule number one is never, ever rat out anybody in your crew. You can't be a narc. Snitches get stitches. It's a wild life. But how do they they afford their drugs? We'll get there. Okay. I mean, we'll get there. It's It's, it's a fair question. It's a wild life and it feels great until that day when things go just a little too far. For Amy Werner, that day is Friday, September 18th, 1998. Arriving at school that morning, Amy carries with her a secret and a fear like a heavy burden. So heavy, in fact, that she actually seeks out her school guidance counselor, Jeannie Karnoff. What Amy tells Karnoff scarce enough to warrant a call to the Bismarck Police Department. Officer Smith, who fields the call, takes it seriously too. He arranges for 
Amy and Karnoff to come down to the police station and file a report. At the station, officers Smith and Kaiser hear the following story from Amy Werner. And I would I would presume her mother is there as well. No. No. Not Weird. Amy is much disturbed by a conversation she had with her boyfriend, Brian Erickstead, the night before. Brian went on and on about how much he hated his parents and wished they were dead. Lots and lots of teenagers complain about their parents. Lots of teenagers even say things like, Oh, my parents are driving me crazy. They won't leave me alone. I hate them. I wish they were dead. But what Amy hears from Brian is more than this kind of teenage hyperbole. Brian has been acting strange and out of character for several days, and Amy tells law enforcement she is afraid he may have hurt his parents. Indeed, she is afraid Brian may have murdered his parents. She confesses that her mother's boyfriend, a man whose nickname is Weasel, told her that Brian had asked him how much jail time he would get for murder. It isn't easy for Amy to voice her concerns to law enforcement. In fact, she begs them not to use her name in the police report because she fears retaliation from Brian and the people he hangs around with. Amy doesn't want to break the number one rule in her gang. Don't be a narc. But her fears about Brian ultimately overwhelm her loyalty and what she tells Officer Kaiser sets off alarm bells throughout the Bismarck Police Department on that crisp fall morning in September of 1998. I, I have a question. Yeah. How does, how does one get the name Weasel? I, it's, it's a good question. I don't know. I, I've given a lot of people nicknames, and I don't really usually know why I've done it, but they, a lot of them have stuck. Have you ever given anybody the name Weasel? In fact, I have. Oh, okay. I'm going to add that. I'm going to add that to like a list of, you know, this is what it takes to be my friend. Like I'm going to like seek you've a weasel it. out. Yeah, mm-hmm. you've made it. Yeah. Now, Brian Erickstead is not unknown to Bismarck Police. A few years previous, Brian's father, Gordon Erickstead, had come to them deeply concerned about his son and for his own safety. Gordon talks to Teresa Porter, an officer with the police youth bureau at the Bismarck Police Department, telling her that he and his wife, Barbara, are afraid of Brian. They're afraid of his temper and violent behavior. He tells Porter that Brian is skipping school, not coming home at night, drinking, doing drugs. Gordon also hands over something he found in Brian's car, a satanic Bible. Porter gives Gordon Erickstead some advice on handling his troubled son, but advice is not enough for Gordon. He breaks down crying in Porter's office, saying that he and his wife are afraid of making Brian more angry, afraid that any action they will they, they take will just make things worse with Brian, worse for themselves. He is all but terrified of his own son, but there is little the Bismarck Police Department can do. And I just have to comment, as a father... The thought of being scared of one of my children is so terrifying, and it's so cringy and creepy. I, I, I can't. This poor guy. Sure. Officer Kaiser goes to Teresa Porter with Amy's story. Porter tells Kaiser that Brian should be considered mentally unstable and very dangerous. 
She also tells Kaiser that Amy Werner's statements in regards to the safety and well-being of Brian's parents should be taken very seriously. Officer Kaiser then contacts Sergeant Robert Haas, who initiates a welfare check. Officers call Gordon Erickstead's employer, the North Dakota National Guard, and Barbara Erickstead's employer, Dan's Supermarket. They discover that neither one of them has come to work for the past two days. Concern for the couple's well-being now escalating, several officers roll out to the Erickstead residence at 245 Laredo Drive in Bismarck. The house at 245 Laredo is an ordinary split-level home with brown siding, brownstone wainscoting. The yard is neat and tidy. There are flower pots on the front walk, the last blooms of summer fading as fall comes on. It's a typical Midwestern home. One, uh, when Sergeant Haas and the other, the other officers arrive at about 10.15, they don't see any cars in the driveway or in front of the house. All the doors are shut and all the draperies and curtains are drawn across the windows. There's a spooky silence about the house against the backdrop of the bright fall morning. Sergeant Haas makes a call to the Burley County State's Attorney's Office and asks if they need a search warrant to enter the house. Given that neither Gordon nor Barbara have shown up for work in two days and that Amy Werner has confessed her fears that their son may have harmed them, State's Attorney Bruce Romanick tells Haas he feels it is okay for them to go into the house and to make a welfare check. Entering through the garage, the first thing Haas notices is all the normal clutter of a garage. Tools and workbenches, lawnmower and snowblower, a large chest freezer. But there are no cars parked in either of the two stalls. The second thing he notices is a small blue rug balled up under the threshold of the door leading into the house. Approaching the door, Haas discovers there are actually two rugs under the door, and both of them are soaked with blood. Sergeant Haas then sees several large, angry, rust-red bloodstains on the wall beneath the door. He sees more blood smeared all over the storm door itself, inside and out, and on the door frame. Blood smears also stand out in stark relief on the white chest freezer that sits near the door. As he enters the house, Haas finds a linoleum-floored entryway leading directly to a carpeted staircase. Down the center of the entryway is a brutal pathway of blood, an 18-inch wide trail of blood punctuated at intervals with sticky pools of coagulated blood. The carpeted staircase is soggy with blood. Every single stair bears a violent blood stain, and another long, grisly trail of blood descends the stairway. When he reaches the living room, Haas sees that it's been completely and savagely ransacked. Chairs and tables are overturned. Drawers are ripped out of cabinets and end tables, their contents thrown about as if by a supernatural force. Pictures are ripped from the walls, and an ornate curio case is smashed, and shards of glass litter the carpet in the living room. Haas makes his way further into the, into the house. He proceeds down a hallway where there are several large pools of blood soaking the carpeting, some nearly two feet in diameter. Off the hallway, he finds two bedrooms. The first bedroom is eerily undisturbed. Nothing is out of place. Nothing is thrown about or smashed. There's no blood anywhere. The second bedroom is something out of a nightmare. As Haas himself says, it looks like an explosion went off in there. 
The mattresses are torn from the bed and the sheets are stripped from the mattresses. Dressers and tables are upended, piled up on the ruined bed. Papers, jewelry, clothing. The most intimate artifacts of life all ripped from the closets and drawers and flung everywhere. And the carpeting in this bedroom, the carpeting is wet with blood, saturated. So much blood, it soaks through to the floorboards beneath. Finishing his tour of the gruesome scene, Sergeant Haas ends up in the kitchen where, sitting in the sink, incongruously next to an empty glass and a bowl of half-eaten cereal, he finds three knives. Each one of the knives have blood on them, and one has a broken blade. There's hair on one of the knives. Outside, in the driveway, at 245 Laredo Drive, officers are marking off and photographing drops and splashes of blood deep red and terrifying against the clean white concrete and the crisp blue autumn sky. So we're thinking that this has been like that for two days. It, it, it seems like it's, it's been there for, for a couple days. They haven't come to work for two days. Oof. And they had, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a grisly it's, scene. Well, and even just I mean, describing it, it's you. Yeah. It's, it's, it's bad. Strongly suspecting they have a murder on their hands and knowing Brian Eriksted's history, over the next 24 hours, BPD interviews nearly a dozen kids connected to Brian. All the kids in that outsider, outlaw clique. One of the first to be interviewed is Ryan Werner. He divulges to Detective Halverson of the Bismarck PD no fewer than 10 names. Robert, Brian, Amy, Michelle, Candy, Weasel, Rick, Bill, Christy, DJ. All people who know what happened at 245 Laredo Drive. Of course, Weasel was there. Weasel's in there. Of course he is. Detective Halverson believes Ryan. Believes that he is not just repeating gossip, but is telling what he knows to be true. Under Halverson's skillful questioning... Ryan ultimately reveals that he had been to the house on Laredo Drive the day before and that he had been driven there by Misty Jones. Even though Detective Halverson was familiar with most of the kids in this gang, Misty was somewhat unknown to him. He had heard her name before, but in his own words, had zero expectation she was involved to the degree she was involved. The degree to which Misty Jones is involved in atrocities at 245 Laredo will shock and horrify Detective Halverson and everyone else on the case. When they bring Misty in, Detective Dave Lundeen conducts a masterful interview. He discovers right away that Brian Erickstead had once been Misty's boyfriend and that she has been friends with Robert Lawrence for nearly a year. He also gets her to admit that she had dropped Brian and Robert off at the house on Laredo Drive on the night of the murders. Lundine recognizes quickly that Misty cares deeply for both Brian and Robert. She's fiercely loyal to them and knows he has to walk a careful line, acknowledging her teenage sensibilities about love and loyalty, but pushing patiently to get the information, the facts and details he believes Misty knows. Correct me if I'm wrong. She's the one that's from New Salem, right? Or she, was, she wasn't she was from Bismarck, if I recall. Not, a, not originally. Yeah. 
Detective Lundeen tells Misty that he is investigating the disappearance of two people. Is it, is it Brian and Robert, she asks? Lundeen confirms that they are looking for Brian and Robert, but they're looking for Gordon and Barbara Erickstead as well, and they're very concerned about their safety. He also tells Misty that he knows that she was inside the Erickstead home during the early morning hours of September 17th. This, rattle, this rattles Misty. She fidgets and squirms in her chair and lies to Lundine, telling him she just dropped them off and waited for five minutes. Sensing Misty's growing agitation and fear of retaliation from her gang of friends, Detective Lundine tells her that she won't get Brian or Robert in trouble with anything she tells him. He tells her that he knows what happened at the house on Laredo Drive, that he has been in the house and has seen the aftermath of the bloody and violent altercation that occurred in the early morning hours of September 17th. Clearly distressed now, Misty begins to cry and begs to leave the interview, but Detective Lundeen presses on. Misty carries on about loving Brian Erickstead and not wanting to get him into any trouble and not wanting to be a narco. Lundeen tells Misty that he knows Brian has threatened to kill himself or to commit suicide by cop so he wouldn't have to go to prison for what he has done. Fully weeping now, Misty chokes out. He'll do it too. He'll do it. Over and over again, Misty tells Detective Lundeen, I love these guys. Over and over, she tells him she won't rat them out. She won't tell what she knows. She's afraid it will get back to the gang and that she's a snitch. Finally, she tells Lundeen she'll talk, but says, you can't write it down. Lundeen agrees to stop taking notes. There's a heavy silence in the small, stuffy interview room. Then... Misty Jones begins to sob heavily. Through her wild tears, she finally says what Detective Lundeen has been waiting to hear. They killed their parents. And Lundeen needs to push Misty one step further. He believes she knows where the bodies of Gordon and Barbara Erickstead are, and he knows he has to tread carefully to get this last piece of critical information. So real quick, so he's only seen he's only seen the the crime scene at this point. Absolutely, he, yeah. I mean, they, they don't even, is, at this point they do not know. They have where, they have no idea. The they pulled in all these kids. They they're kind of familiar with this group. They know who Amy Werner is. Her house is familiar to them. So they immediately have interviewed all these right. kind of kids. So there's still, named. I mean, at this point, it's a, it's, you know, a race against time. It, it I mean, really they're is. Kind of, I'm not, they obviously know they're not going to be able to save them, but to at least find mm. their bodies, it's, it's, they're at the very beginning still. Yep. Cause yep, exactly. Yeah. This is, these interviews pushed through Friday night and into Saturday that they're kind of interviewing all of, all of these kind of kids that were sure. named and related to this. He's playing on her heartstrings. He tells Misty that it is very important they recover the bodies as soon as possible because the Erickstead family needs to have closure on this horrible incident. After several minutes, Misty again breaks down crying and, revealing her ignorance and immaturity, asks, quote, Will the family be mad at me if I go to the funeral? It's a real question I, that she asked, yes. I... I Yes, that shows her immaturity. That's a nice way of putting it. 
We're diplomatic here at Midwest Werner. <laughs> it isn't easy. Misty tells Lundeen she doesn't know where the bodies are. She tells him that Brian and Robert told her they took the bodies out of state. She tells him that they were going to dump them in the desert, but Lundeen presses on. When Misty tells him that the bodies are out in the open near a farm, I don't think it's out of state, Lundeen knows he is getting close to the truth. He asks Misty, did Brian tell you if the bodies were buried north or south of Bismarck? And Misty answers, whichever way Selfridge is. Misty finally reveals several key details about the location of the bodies. A certain farmstead, a field with no fences, a tree row, and all hell breaks loose at Bismarck PD. Detective Halverson tells dispatch to get a hold of the sheriff of Sioux County and tell them that about a dozen units from the Bismarck Police Department, an equipment truck, generators, and a helicopter are on their way. By the time... Hang on, before you you go further, I... I almost feel bad for her. You know, the, the fact that, I mean, at this point she's, you know, probably a, 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 she's a child, you know, she's, she's suffering from, I don't know, she's needing that. Right. And so she's so in love with this boy yeah. who turns out to, you know, if it's him, he turns out to be a psychopath. Right. I mean, so she's just guilty by association, you know, yeah. at this point, I mean, we're, We've still got a lot of story to go. Well, big but. time, no. And Misty Jones, and we'll talk about it on the back end of the episode, but she did not have an easy life growing sure. up. And you clearly have a group of, of misguided and troubled teens that have attached themselves to an older, stronger, and probably nefarious personality. Well, and, and probably a manipulative in, in Robert as well. Lawrence. Yeah, yeah it's, well, it's, so it's a I, scary situation. Yeah, and I, I apologize to jump ahead and because I know you'll get there, but it, yeah, I mean, I almost kind of feel bad for her. She's She's in a shitty spot. It gets worse for her. Okay. Um, by the time they travel the 50 miles to Selfridge, it's nearly 8 p.m. Dusk is gathering, and so the detectives set up floodlights. They quickly find tire tracks that enter the field from the south and pull right up to a tree row. Following the tire tracks, the detectives make the harrowing discovery of the bodies of Gordon and Barbara Erickstead. Gordon is lying on his back with his arms spread out from his body and one knee is bent up. Barbara is lying in an almost fetal position with her head on Gordon's stomach. Her shirt is pulled up over her breasts. Both bodies and their clothing are soaked in blood, and there are numerous injuries to the head and neck areas of both victims. The detectives photograph the bodies in the scene at the tree row, and then each body, first Gordon's and then Barbara's, is placed on a clean white sheet and then into body bags. The detectives then make the long drive back to Bismarck in the full dark of night, bringing Gordon and Barbara Erickstead home. Head and neck. That's anger. That's personal. So, what happened the day of the Erickstead murders? What had this band of misfits been up to? Was it a day like any other? Bright, sunny, fall day? Or was it a day shrouded in the ominous specter of murder and bloodlust? What did a typical day look like for these kids? What do we actually know about these kids? I can tell you, they were rough kids with rough lives. And having each other, believing they could count on each other no matter what, meant everything to them. I can also tell you that they were all under the sway of their questionable role model, Robert Lawrence. And I can tell you that Robert Lawrence 
is not a good guy. Case in point, sometimes when they were out driving around or partying, when Robert Lawrence would see a black person or a Native American, he'd calmly muse to himself, I've always wondered what it would be like to kill someone. Oh, he seems fun. Nice. Great, great at parties. In fact, the weekend prior to the murders, Robert Lawrence violently assaulted a black man in the streets of downtown Bismarck. The attack was completely random and carried out with brass knuckles. It was a hate crime, quick and vicious, a foretelling of Robert Lawrence's homicidal desires. And that is my biggest fear, is that my kids are going to be manipulated by some psychopath like this. It's, like that's, that's the shit that scares me. Home alone. Is, my home alone. Isn't the comedy we were led to believe it is. I'll tell you what, cause these kids were left home alone a lot. This is where they wandered their way into. I can tell you that on Wednesday, September 16th, Robert Lawrence, along with his band of merry, possibly murderous and certainly delinquent minors partied all day. That old phrase, you can't drink all day if you don't start in the morning, was the order of the day. And it's a beautiful Indian summer day in Bismarck, North Dakota. The temperature will reach nearly 80 degrees by afternoon. But why wait till afternoon? Around 10.30 in the morning, Robert and the kids, including Misty Jones, Brian Erickstead, and a runaway by the name of Dave Pankowski, grab a 30-pack of beer and head to a popular swimming hole and party spot called the Rapids. Why go to school when you can party the last warm days of summer away on the river? Well, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. No, I don't, it's hard for me to hold that one against him. <laughs> All day long, the group parties, swims, and makes plans to throw a huge party later that night at the house at 701 East Sweet Street, the home of the Werner family, Amy, Michelle, and Ryan, their mother Pam Stokert, and her boyfriend, Weasel. Oh, weasel. The group departs from the rapids at around 6.45 p.m. Robert Lawrence has come up with a cockeyed plan. As part of her probation, Misty Jones is required to attend regular AA meetings. Wouldn't it be hilarious, Robert says, if they all crashed the AA meeting completely drunk? He just keeps getting cooler and cooler. Oh, it's best. Yeah, he's... Everyone loves this idea. And three carloads of kids head out to crash the 8 p.m. meeting. Before crashing the AA meeting at approximately 7.30, Amy Werner, Rick Storhog, and Brian Erickstead stop off at Brian's parents' house. He's decided to move in with Amy at the house on 701 East Suite. And he wants to get some of his things. Brian doesn't take a whole lot from the house, just some clothes. As they're about to leave, his parents return home. And there's a really pleasant exchange between the group of kids and the parents. Brian's sweet mother Barbara even insists on sending them off with a plate of cook with Ugh. a plate of cookies. Man. Mm. Yeah, that's tough. By 8 p.m., it's time to crash Misty's AA meeting. The three carloads of half-drunk teenagers taking nothing in life seriously pile into the meeting and occupy seats hang on At, kids if you're listening and you shouldn't be you if shouldn't you're listening be. this is not cool like, not don't cool. do this this no. is this is a dick move oh it's bad it's you no know, call it you're right so the three carloads of half-drunk teenagers taking nothing in life seriously pile into the meeting and occupy seats 
At some point during the meeting, Robert Lawrence is asked to speak, but he acts as though he's illiterate or mentally handicapped, really making a mockery of the whole event. There's some reaction from the rabble of teens, and then all of them jump up out of their chairs and leave, except Misty Jones, because she has to stay. It's court-ordered. Now, there's some time to waste before Misty's meeting is over, and Dave Pinkowski wants to make some beer money. Don, you were curious about this earlier. I'm just wondering now if you were a runaway teenager, half drunk, who just crashed an AA meeting, you're out of beer and drugs and McDonald's, how do you suppose you're going to go about acquiring money for all of these necessary items? A, I feel attacked right now. And secondly, um, I would a thousand percent steal it somehow. A thousand percent stealing. Yeah. I, I guess. Okay. It's well, a bold I mean, plan. Well, it's a bold wait, plan. Don't judge me. I don't know. I'm not judging I'm, you. No, it's, it's, it's... I don't know. I'm a half-drunk teenager who's like up to no good. Yeah, you know. put yourself in the shoes. Like I'm panicking. Right? I get yeah. it. Okay. Evidently, these kids have been regularly shoplifting at JCPenney's. Oh, so I was right. You're right. Okay. And it's, it's an ongoing scheme. They steal the clothes, then bring them to a register as if they've previously purchased them and return them from cash. That's it. That's, that's their whole gambit. On this particular evening, it was a pair of Arizona jeans simply taken from the shelf and returned to the register for cash. Well, like 20 bucks. Like that's in, I don't know, back, ni- no, that's, in, in 98. No, in like 98, those were like $40, $50 pair of jeans, I'm thinking. Well, that's a, a shitload of beer money, actually. Yeah, it's a lot of beer yeah. money. It's Again, it's beer, mm-hmm. it's Mickey D's, and it's drugs. That's what you get with that. Or maybe I'm, two cases of beer and Mickey D's. I'm sorry to the Arizona jeans company for undervaluing their, their Yeah, how <laughs> their dare cost. you. Back in 98... <laughs> So after the shoplifting mission is complete, they pick up Misty from AA, buy beer, and the party at 701 East Suite is on. Throughout the night, they make at least three more trips to the liquor store. On one trip, Misty Jones buys three cases of beer. The house, yeah, it's, I mean, they are partying their asses off. The house at 701 East Suite Street. Yeah, yeah, hang on. Why? Why does Misty have to go? Where's Weasel or Robert at this she, point? They're the ones that are available. It's a great age. question because none of these scumbags have cars. Misty, so she's yeah, got the, somebody she's knew got that out car. there. They're like, yeah. exactly. Yeah, Misty Jones had had the car. It was a little red Geo Metro. Which, so. But. Ro, yeah, that's. Like, God. So imagine they're cruising around to all these places in a little red Geo Metro. That's Other, what they stole like, in. That's what. All, murder yeah. aside, I have so many issues. So yeah. many. I, yeah, the little red Geo Metro, the legendary car of the late 90s. I had, a, I had a friend who had one, and yeah. Yeah, oh yeah. My so friend had a blue one. The house at 701 East Sweet Street is a well-known juvenile flop and party house. Pam Werner, her boyfriend, Weasel, and siblings Amy, Ryan, and Michelle live on the top floor, while the basement is open to anyone who needs a place to crash or to party. At any given time, five, six, seven high school kids, five, six or seven high school aged kids may be temporarily or even permanently living there. And at 701 East Sweet Street, Robert Lawrence, menacingly charismatic and disturbingly alluring, has everyone in the basement under his spell. I really hate that guy. The, the basement of the Sweet House has its own entrance and all the kids come and go as they please. It's their own world with no rules and no adult authority. The rooms in the basement of the sweet house are unkept, cluttered. Every room is packed with furniture, couches, beds, mattresses on the floor, 
Everyone smokes cigarettes inside, and the air is stale and musty. It's messy. There are clothes strewn all over, and no one really keeps track of what belongs to who. They all just kind of share everything. Clothing, booze, drugs, beds, partners. Every room in this basement is like a different universe of identity and intoxication. Just take a moment and just envision this party. Everyone's chattering a million miles a minute, telling stories, exaggerating, smoking cigarettes, chugging beers, passing pipes around. It's not just the all-day binge drinking. These kids are also smoking meth, snorting cocaine, and doing speedballs. A mixture of cocaine and heroin or morphine or sometimes speed. An extremely dangerous mixture, more so than the sum of the parts due to the drug synergy. While people are partying hard, Robert and Brian are being unusually quiet and keep off to themselves. But there are no secrets among this group. Amy and Michelle briefly confront the two about their solitary behavior, but it's shrugged off and forgotten as the party rages on. Around 10.30 p.m., Robert Lawrence and others decide they want some weed. They leave, but return relatively quickly after having no luck trying to score a bag of weed at Buck's. At around 11.30 p.m., a friend named Jason Enzi shows up and fronts them a quarter ounce of weed, telling them not to worry about paying for it up front. He'll get the money from them tomorrow. The handful of kids remaining smoke it up. By now, the party's died down. A lingering haze of smoke permeates the basement. People are passing out on couches. If if I can interject, Bucks, if you know, you know. (laughs) Right. It's a good call out. Mm-hmm. The vibe is different now. Darker. Something malevolent is in the air. Brian and Robert hole up in a downstairs room and ask to be alone with Rick Storhog. Something secret is up. Michelle and Ryan feel left out and rejected. Ryan goes to bed. And by goes to bed, I mean he goes on the couch next to the goes on the bed next to the couch where everybody's actually still hanging out where everyone and just quote air quotes go. goes to yeah. bed that's mm-hmm. kind of how it is down there there's still a few people hanging out partying doing whatever and robert asks ryan what's wrong ryan tells him he's tired he's bored robert says well i'm going to tell you something i don't want you to get in trouble for it we're going to kill brian's parents tonight around midnight Rick Storhog tells his girlfriend, Misty Jones, and the others, he'll be right back. And if this was a horror movie, Rick would be the he, one He who, wouldn't actually yeah, be back. He wouldn't actually be back. No, no. He would he's, be dead. He's going to reappear. He says he's taking DJ home, but Rick never comes back to the sweet house. Instead, he goes home and goes to bed. Not long after, Misty, Brian Erickstad and Robert Lawrence leave the sweet house in Misty's Red Geo Metro. They make a few stops in search of Rick's storehog. They check the Washington Heights apartments, space aliens. He's not in either location. So they finally decide to check his house and discover his cars in the driveway. He's home. Misty knocks on his window, but he doesn't answer her knock. It's probably the smartest thing he's ever done. I think he's become my favorite character so far. Just for, just for having brain cells. Just yeah. for not being an idiot. Misty knocks on Rick Storhog's window. He doesn't answer her knock. Smartest thing he's ever done. 
Brian Erickstead and Robert Lawrence then direct Misty Jones to the home of Gordon and Barbara Erickstead at 245 Laredo Drive. And remind she, me, Misty is Brian's... Misty is Rick Storhog's girlfriend, girlfriend but, who, but also the ex-girlfriend of Brian Erickstead. Okay. Brian, his girlfriend is Amy. Amy is the one who went into the office and told her counselor on right. Friday morning. And this I, is thank flashing you, back. Thank yeah. you for, if I'm confused, I can't imagine what you guys are saying. There's so many names in this, so thank you. I appreciate that. Right. So Brian Erickstead and Robert Lawrence, they direct Misty Jones to the home of Gordon and, Bar- Gordon and Barbara. She parks in the street. The three of them approach the house and enter through the garage door. Brian and Robert are pacing in the garage. Brian goes inside, but he returns after just a few moments. He's nervous. He tells Robert Lawrence that his parents are awake. Robert asks Brian if he can get his dad into the living room. Maybe, says Brian. Brian and Robert tell Misty to stay in the garage. She hops up on the chest freezer, lights up a cigarette as the two young men enter the Erickstead home. A few moments later, Misty hears screaming coming from the house. She hears one male voice shout, Ah, what the fuck? And another male voice snarl, Die, you fuckers, die. Minutes later, Brian emerges from the house. He's covered in blood. He looks at Misty and says, Oh my God, oh my God, it's done. It's done. I killed my parents. Misty is shocked and shaken, but she follows Brian back into the home. Why? So, die you fuckers die, fuckers being his parents. It's a scene of pure nightmare fuel. So terrible and violent that it doesn't seem real to Misty Jones. She feels like she's walked onto the set of a film. Upstairs, Gordon Erickstead is lying dead on the floor, blood pooling around his body. The hallway is a vicious tapestry of blood smear and splatter. Utterly stunned, her brain recoiling in horror, Misty walks down the hallway and sees Barbara Erickstead lying in her bedroom, alive, still breathing. Misty Jones looks at the dying woman and tells her, I'm sorry, I'm sorry this is happening to you. Misty tells Brian and Robert that Barbara is still alive, and they begin kicking her in the head. Brian turns and yells at Misty, You're not sorry, you fucking bitch. Don't be sorry for her. She's a bitch. There's more shouting now. Robert screams, cut her throat, cut her throat. She's still breathing. Stab her jugular vein. Brian stabs her again and again. With each vicious stab, he cries out, I love you, mom. I love you, mom. Die, you fucking bitch. Then he returns to Gordon Erickstead plunging the knife into the already lifeless body of his father. Lawrence encourages him, More! More! Be sure he's dead. Gordon Erickstead was stabbed 23 times. He had at least four wounds severe enough to have caused death. On the right side of his face, a puncture wound penetrated his skull and entered his brain. Another, entering from the right side of his neck, damaged his cervical vertebrae. A third struck his right shoulder, 
at such an angle that it cut into his spine, severing his spinal cord, leaving him paralyzed from the waist down. A fourth wound in his chest underneath his right arm penetrated all the way through his right lung and cut his aorta. Two of the knife strikes to Gordon Erickstead's head hit with such force and trauma, fragments from the knife broke off and lodged into his skull. Barbara had no fewer than 14 wounds to her torso, nine of which were in the back. Of those nine wounds, four penetrated her chest cavity and cut her lungs. There were numerous injuries to her head, too many to individually identify. The cut to her throat was a deep, massive incision. There were so many cuts and stab wounds to her neck area, they could not be counted. Any of the three stab wounds could have been fatal. One to her skull, where the blade penetrated into her brain. One to her throat, or one entering through her back and puncturing her lungs. Dear God, it wait is... a second. Hang on. Gosh. That's a lot. <laughs> in in the same breath, he's, you know, saying, you know, telling her to die, but also I love you. Like, it, what the... It is violence unlike anything I've seen in my time doing Midwest murder. This one's, this is brutal. This is. It is a display of completely unhinged violence. It is so shocking to Misty Jones that it doesn't seem real. In that moment, Barbara and Gordon Erickstead, lying there, lifeless, in pools of their own bloods, they don't look like people to Misty. They look like dolls. She can't believe any of this is happening. I'm going to stand by my thing. I, I feel really bad for her. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think she wanted to be there for that. In the chaos that follows, Brian and Robert believe they'll be able to clean it all up with bleach and just make it look like the slain couple has gone missing. Um, I'm sorry. In 1998, I'm pretty sure like Cold Case Files and like some of those shows were already happening. He's a fucking moron yeah oh yeah <laughs> sorry and yeah. I, you know what i don't i, I in r- real life i say the f word a lot in this i don't i, r- I rarely do I, I mean it like what an idiot well don misty tells him quote you're fucked no matter what no matter what you use <laughs> so well well done misty yeah because uh, we've all seen shows at that point it yeah. was 1998 like, well, what an idiot. Well, I mean, for in multiple reasons. Like, not even just that. They've but. been drinking and doing drugs for 12 to 14 hours at this point. Hey, I have like I have started in the morning at right. times. And I have not done this. So, no, I don't... So, Misty, Misty then leaves to get help. And what kind of help isn't really clear? Driving her little red Geo Metro, it doesn't take her long to get back to the house at 701 East Sweet Street. She quietly tries waking Ryan Werner. Dave Penkowski and another runaway are sleeping off the party out in his room. Dave is awakened by Misty's whispering to Ryan. He overhears her say, You can't tell anyone about this. I could get the gas chamber for this. Ryan then leaves with Misty and they return to the scene of the crime, but Gordon Erickstead's truck is gone and there's no sign of the killers. Frantic. Misty drives back to the sweet house, drops Ryan off, and leaves again in search of Brian and Robert. She can't find them anywhere. When she gets back to the sweet house, Dave Pinkowski is wide awake. 
Misty tells him, go back to bed. About 45 minutes later, Brian Erickstead pokes his head into the room and asks Misty to come outside. Brian Erickstead and Robert Lawrence are driving Gordon Erickstead's brand new 1998 Chevy pickup. It's an extended cab with a cover over the back. The bodies of Brian's parents are in the truck. The three of them then drive 50 miles out of town to a farm near Selfridge, North Dakota, and dump the bodies in a tree row. So it's now Thursday morning. Brian, Robert, and Misty show up at the sweet house at 8 a.m. after dumping the bodies. Amy's upset with Brian. They argue. Amy skips school and goes to bed with Brian. Robert Lawrence stays awake, and he gives Ryan Werner a ride to school. Oh, well, that's nice of him. <laughs> yeah. Just a long night of brutal murdering and no sleep, and you need a ride to school, P.S.? And oh, heck yeah, I'll drop you off. Ryan notices that Lawrence, who doesn't even have his own vehicle, is driving a brand new truck. When Ryan gets in the vehicle, Robert asks, Do you like my new truck? Smells like death, doesn't it? And then he tells Ryan everything. Tells him flat out, we killed Brian's parents. Thursday, September 17th unfolds in the most bizarre fashion. Brian and Robert basically spend the day parading around in Gordon Erickstead's stolen truck, fresh with the stench of death, running their friends to and from school and doing errands. Ryan Werner ditches... I'm sorry, what yeah. kind of errands do they have to do? It's, they're going to see their friends. They're, they're, they're glorifying what they've done. They're cruising around. Um, AB Pizza. Like, it's... So what, drop some film off to have, you know, redeveloped? Like, what, 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 what can you possibly have to do? I, anyway, um, I'm, get, I'm sure yeah, that yeah, wasn't, get their in, papers, sure that their wasn't in the papers. notes, but good God. <laughs> Ryan, Ryan Werner ditches school. They pick him up. So that's one of their errands. Oh, we're just going to pick up these, uh, <laughs> we're going to pick up these truant minors. Okay, Misty's, well, I guess Misty's I'll forgive following, them and it's not, it's not just them in Gordon Erickstead's stolen truck. Misty's following them around in her car. So now you asked about the errands. Well, they, they drive to Stanton to visit a friend who's in jail there. So that's what you do. And on the way, Misty Jones is pulled over for speeding. Now, how she keeps her cool in front of that cop, I will never know. She gets a ticket and goes about her day. She even has a probation meeting that afternoon, which she does not miss. I can only imagine... Misty Jones was bordering delirium at that meeting, but she manages to get through it. We that I'm I'm about to call up some probation officers in the uh, in the in the audience here, but I won't. But whew. I mean, can you can you freaking imagine? Like, wow. Okay, sorry, Plans, I'm listening. No, it's it, it's 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 to me, it's so freaking crazy that the whole night you've had, you get pulled over, you keep your cool to a cop, then you go to a probation meeting after just these horrifying things that you've experienced. And and I, I'm guessing Misty maybe wasn't doing as many drugs as, as all of these other guys, but it, it's still, it's, it's so, it's so insane. Plans are in motion now. Brian and Robert tell their girlfriends, Amy and Michelle, they're going to leave the state and tell the girls they want them to come with them. Amy, Michelle, and Ryan agree to go with Brian and Robert. They drop Ryan Werner off at the sweet house, telling him to pack all their clothes. 
It's kind of unbelievable. But at this point, somehow, middle of the afternoon Thursday, Amy still doesn't know what's actually happened. And when she finds out, she has a total breakdown and becomes hysterical. After Amy calms down, Robert, Brian, and Amy, and Michelle go back to 245 Laredo Drive to take Barbara Erickstead's Cadillac. Brian tells Amy not to touch a damn thing. Only Brian goes into the house. Later in the afternoon, they all go back to the river, to the rapids. The last place Misty Jones sees the murderers that day. Brian is there with Barbara Erickstead's Cadillac, Robert with Gordon Erickstead's Chevy truck. At the last minute, Amy and Michelle decide not to leave with Brian and Robert. They say a tearful goodbye. Robert and Brian give Misty a gas can with orders to burn the bodies. They tell Michelle to dispose of the bloody blankets that Gordon and Barbara were wrapped in. She tosses them in the trees behind a softball complex in Mandan. After that, the girls go home and just go to bed. Three days after the murders, on Sunday, September 20th, Brian Erickstead calls his friend Rick Storhog. Brian doesn't know it, but the Storhog's phone line has been set up with a tracer. The police officer who takes the call can hear Rick in the background cursing at his father for turning in his friend Brian. Literally no care from Rick for the people who've been murdered. He's just pissed at his dad for routing, for ratting out his friends, the killers. That same day, a security officer at an apartment complex in Grand Prairie, Texas, notices a pickup with North Dakota plates and calls it into the local police. When they run the plates, they discover a warrant for a stolen vehicle. Later that afternoon, Robert Lawrence and Brian Erickstead are arrested for the murder of Gordon and Barbara Erickstead. On Monday, officers from Bismarck PD head to Texas to, to conduct interviews with Brian and Robert. They show Brian pictures of his parents' corpses from the tree row at the farm outside of Selfridge. Brian fakes a reaction and also appears to cry into his hands. Officers don't believe it's genuine. Brian doesn't want to talk anymore. And the officers who observed the interview felt like Brian was going to do something, possibly attack an officer. Eventually, he just stops talking and asks for a lawyer. Robert Lawrence is also shown pictures. Oh, how did that happen, he asks. Robert doesn't want to talk either. Now, something, Don, that I've learned is murderers really like to talk about their work. If not to the cops, while in the Texas holding cell, Robert Lawrence and Brian Erickstead speak freely, even proudly, of the brutal slayings in Bismarck to fellow inmate Anthony Herbert. Herbert relays much of the story to investigators, and the two of them evidently told Herbert they killed Brian's parents by stabbing them in the head and then dumped the bodies on the reservation. Their plan was to live in Laredo, Texas after selling the truck. Herbert tells law enforcement, excuse me, Herbert tells law enforcement that the older one, Robert Lawrence, sounded as if he did most of the killing. Herbert even tells Brian Erickstead that he sounds like a follower, to which Brian replies he was up for anything and did it for the money. Herbert alleges that Brian and Robert claimed the Ericsteads were going to turn them in for robberies the two had committed, and that as far as they were concerned, Gordon and Barbara Ericsted had lived long enough. Yeah, them jailhouse confessions. 
Well, and I think it's, it, there's always a, a common question when that happens. Um, what's in it for that guy, right? But there was nothing in it for him. There's nothing in it for him. Yeah, a lot of times that happens. Yep. It's, it, it's just because, I, I mean, and it's happened in a couple of cases that there's nothing in it for those people. It's just, this is not okay. Right. I mean, holy smokes. Robert Lawrence also bullied one of the other men in the cell to give him his shoes and switch shoes with him because he was still wearing the bloody, the shoes, bloody shoes with the blood on the bottom. And they were Reeboks with a star and investigators when they sprayed the scene when they with that little, you know, blood spray. I forget what the name of it is called. Luminal. So luminal. Thank you. Um, but they spray it with luminal and they see that bloody star and that guy who got his shoes bullied and, and taken from him goes and says, Hey man, I don't want to get in trouble for this. This guy made me give him my shoes. And so, yeah, anyways, Robert Lawrence also did that. Uh, numerous kids from the circle of friends are charged with hindering law enforcement. So that's a class C felony, Ryan Werner, Amy Werner, Misty Jones, and Candy Olszewski. Important to note, Robert Lawrence takes the first possibility he can to narc on Brian Erickstead. Of course he does. I mean, it, what a did motherfucker. We, did, well, did we just, ex- did, well, did we expect anything else? I, of course not. I mean, this guy is not exactly an upstanding citizen. This makes citizen. my skin crawl. In a recorded meeting, Robert Lawrence tells officers if they bug him, he can get Brian to admit to the murders. Robert says he wants to help police get a confession from Brian. Well, you know why? Because. Robert knows he's screwed. Oh, yeah. And so he knows yep. that he'll give it up. Like, to, so he's, tr- I mean, he's trying to save himself at this point. Like, right. again, a super cool guy. Some of the uh, additional, yeah, additional aftermath. Uh, of course, a lot of people in high school talking shit about all of them. Rick and others threatened to beat people up who are talking shit about Brian. Several weeks after the murderers, uh, after the murders, Amy and Michelle were interviewed by the newspaper. They proudly posed for the photos, thoroughly enjoyed the press, claiming to forever be in love. The girls said they regret not leaving with the murderers and were still planning a future with the murderers. When Amy was asked how she could still support Brian, quote, I'm sure Barbara and Gordon Erickstead would want her there to support their son, Brian. I have no doubt in my mind. I'll be marrying him. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely sure that's what they would want. Like delusional. Um, but, but clearly, I mean, clearly manipulated and brainwashed. I mean, I mean, it has to be at this and, point. And, and there's some additional information where Amy Werner comes from the, the, the sweet house, Pam Stoker and Weasel are basically meth addicts doing meth and cooking it in their garage. Uh, Pam was commonly known to hide runaways, although she never tried to lie to the police. If the police showed up at her house and were like, is there a runaway here? She'd be like, yeah, in the basement. But you can't go in the garage unless you got a warrant. And that was that was what they did. So Pam, Pam and Weasel turned a blind eye to everything that was happening downstairs and often provided meth to these kids. So when you were wondering, how are they getting money? Well, That's you how. found out, of course, they're stealing and selling the clothes, but they're also dealing drugs on the side. Um, so uh, also a couple of weeks after the murderer, after the murders, Amy Werner, she breaks into the Erickstead home along with six other people th- who were arrested, including the adults, Pam Stoker and Weasel. Um, cops actually had alarms set up 
and, and they arrived as suspects were leaving the house. It was class B, a class B felony charges for both the adults and all the minors went to juvie. What were they looking for? I'm, I'm guessing they thought there were still some riches in the Ericstead house. Sure. That was ultimately Brian, Brian thought that he, even after murdering his parents, would be able to get the inheritance. And what really initiated I don't, I don't the, think that's the, how that works. Yeah. He, he was pretty surprised to find out in court too. Like he thought, he, he still thought his parents' lawyers were going to represent him in court. And, and, and the, the, the prosecutor's like, I think Brian has a lot to learn about how this is about to work for him. Don't do drugs, so, kids. Yeah. Uh, I so think this is, I mean, clearly. Eventually a jury trial is held, uh, goes from October 11th through October 18th, 1999. The jury finds Eric Stead and Lawrence guilty in all counts. A couple of follow-ups from some of the key players in this story. Misty Jones, her story is, again, pretty tragic. Her father was putting, according to her, beer in her tippy cups and bottles when she was a kid. She was a full-blown alcoholic by the age of 12. Misty Jones eventually gets married to Rick Storhog. They cook meth together and both serve time in prison. Uh, Ryan Werner eventually passed away in 2009. And a lot of people believe that Rick Storhog knew what was going to happen and was supposed to be the third person on the job. And so when, when he, that's why they went looking for him that night was because they, he was expected to help them carry out these murders. So Misty Jones, Rick Michelle, they all write letters and all of Misty's letters to Robert Lawrence and Brian just have, I love you and I miss you written all over them. And one final note, I did leave this out of the full story because it, it, but it's still just pretty, I thought was really interesting. On that Friday, the Pam Stoker, crazy, tweaked out, comes into the police station in a complete disarrayed panic and, and, and claimed her kids were in on all the murder planning meetings and that they told her there was a bunch of parents who were supposed to be killed. So she storms in there, all twacked out, claiming that there's a parental kill list. And that she's probably on it. Then she says that her daughter needs to be in the psych ward, but that she won't go willingly. So three officers go to the house to assist her in getting her daughter, Amy, to the psych ward. Then two hours after Amy is admitted to the psych ward, Pam goes in and takes her daughter out of the psych ward. So just a crazy, crazy, crazy Friday um, that, that went down that day. So... And I, I think it's I think it's important to to note though that that these are all like these children are are they're, I mean they're and they're children, right? They have been you know if you look at Misty's story, her her super great dad putting you know beer in her sippy cup and and those things. I mean it's these kids had a shit life. They didn't, for whatever reason, they didn't have a great, it it certainly sounds like Gordon and Barbara were trying to do the best for Brian. And I wonder, although he had exhibited these violent, you know, ideologies previously, I, I, I wonder how Robert Lawrence altered the trajectory. Does, does does Brian Erickstead ever become a killer if he never meets Robert Lawrence? And I, I don't know that he does. I, I, Robert manipulated all of them. Yeah, for sure. I'm sorry, it's not normal for a 27 year old. It wasn't quite a cult, but children. he was kind of like a cult leader. Yeah, among them. Yeah, but yeah. but it's not 
normal for a 27 year old to hang out with high school children. It's yeah. not a, a lot. A lot of the interviews with the kids who were interviewed for the court cases say as much that many of the ideas came from Robert, the music they listened to, the things they did. Well, Robert you know, Lawrence was the driving force behind this group of lost soul teenagers for sure. Woof. Um, uh, so this episode, I just want to say thanks again to CJ Wynn for running our intro. Um, of course, thank, thank you to Shots Crossroads. This episode was brought to you in part by Shots Crossroads. It's our hometown truck stop open 24 hours a day. The pies are always fresh. The coffee is always hot. Try and the fries. They're the, delicious. Dude, the shot. Yeah, of course. The, and I just love it again. Breakfast 24 seven. The truck stop can accommodate busloads of people, family owned and operated. It's on its second generation and they have mobile gift certificates so if you want to send someone you know that lives in Minot a gift certificate just go to shotscrossroads.com so we thank them for sponsoring this episode of Midwest Murder sources for this episode this story was predominantly based on actual case files and court records additional source the WDA documentary The House of Sweet and Seventh this episode of Midwest Murder was co-written by Dr. Sean Ann Tangney. She's a writer and producer at the Good Talk Network. And thank you to all of you for being here with us. 